So as I mentioned, we're in James chapter 1 this morning. We are actually starting into, uh, really it's the second part of this series, uh, Uncivilized uh, Faith and Understanding the concept of, of there's, there's this dynamic of following Jesus that sometimes we never really tap into because our faith, our understanding becomes civilized and we kind of default to a safe, kind of comfortable, easy, in the bubble kind of understanding of following Jesus as opposed to what the scriptures describe for you and I. If you're here a couple weeks ago, we started into that and talking about, about what that looks like. And so now we're actually going to jump into the book of James and walk through that this morning. But before we, we do that, as we talk about the, the passage, we're going to look at a pretty good chunk of Scripture today, verses 1 through 18 of, of James 1, and, and talk about this concept of maturity. Um, you'll see right off the bat, James begins to talk about what that looks like in our life. That means coming to a place where God is completing us, he's getting us to a place where we don't lack things, not that we're perfect by meaning we have no flaws, but to a place where we're actually really solid in our faith and maturity in him. The challenge with that is that it sounds really good and it sounds really appealing, but what challenges us is the journey to get there. Now, if you watch TV, I guarantee within like an hour segment of TV, you're going to see one, a great marketing tool that's been used forever, and that is the before and after pictures. Anybody ever seen that before? So it's a gym, it's a diet plan, it's some health thing. And so you're watching TV and somebody comes on and and maybe they're not in great health and maybe they're a little bit overweight. And so that's their before picture. And they said, but for this many weeks, I ate this kind of food and I did this kind of training. And now, and then there's the after picture and they're ripped and they're, you know, they're, they're thin and they're healthy and they're strong. And you're like, yeah, that's what I need to do. So you take down the number or you go on the website, you get excited about it, you pay, you know, nineteen ninety-five three times over and then payments for whatever. And then two weeks in, you're like, ah, I don't think so. And you all, all you have is the before picture. You never got to the after picture because you got lost somewhere in the middle. And what is that in the middle part? What is between the before and the after? There's a thing called perseverance. And apart from that, you'll never get to where you're supposed to be in life. You'll never get to where God wants you to be. And so this morning, we're going to talk a bit about that and how God is producing that kind of maturity in our lives through something that none of us like. It's a thing called trials, and it's common to all of humanity. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to start in verse 1. I'll read through verse 18 of James chapter 1. It starts, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must must, uh, believe and do not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. The one one should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. It blossoms, falls, it blossoms fall, and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because... Having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. 
But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Take a deep breath. That's a lot. And as you can see from just the first 18 verses of, of James, throughout this book, James takes the gloves off and goes for it. He doesn't hold back. And that's the challenge that we're going to walk through as we journey through this book together, is what James is saying is that maybe, just maybe, you have to consider that the faith that you've embraced, this thing you call Christianity, is not necessarily the faith that God intended for you that there's something that's still missing from the experience that you call Christianity that God intended for you to experience. And it's challenged in the, in the passages we're going to look at. So we're going to talk about trials, and there's really four main questions, I think, that James addresses through these 18 verses that we want to hit on. And the first one is the question that we all ask, and that's why. Why trials? Because if you and I could do it our way, we would just we would extract pain, suffering, loss, difficulty, and trials from our life, and we would just, we'd start at the before, and we'd fast forward to the after, and we'd say, hey, I'm good. Doesn't that sound good to anybody? Like, forget all the pain and suffering and perseverance. I don't want any of that. I just want before to after. You know, it's like God just kind of wave your magic wand and make it all go away, but God doesn't do that. Why trials? Two things that James highlights. Look at verse 3. The first one is because you can't learn perseverance without them. You can't get from before to after without trials that teach you this valuable lesson called perseverance. You can't learn that. James says, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Without testing, there's no perseverance. Without being pushed beyond your limit, without experiencing pain or difficulty or struggle or loss, there is no growth. It just doesn't happen. And that means that you and I have to have a mindset that changes from what we think, and that is that we have to be willing to embrace difficult seasons in our life if we're truly going to be able to make it through to be faithful to the end of what God's trying to accomplish in our life. Because we're very short-sighted in our, in our mind. We just, we're, we want immediate results. We don't want to have to go through the long journey. We want to get there right away. But God says, no, you have to walk through this thing called trials in order to learn perseverance so that you can make it to the end. There are so many analogies between our faith and athletics, the way that we approach sports, because there has a lot to do with the physical training that goes into how we actually become a good athlete that relates to the spiritual things that God walks us through. Perseverance is one of those. When you watch your favorite sport or you watch your favorite athlete and you see them, you watch them for two or three hours in a game and you marvel at their ability. You, what you and I are seeing is a slice, just a small glimpse of all that has gone into the moment that you and I witness on a television. What we don't see is way before the season started, all the hours of blood, sweat, and tears that were poured into preparation that built through pain and suffering, built this thing called perseverance that gave them the ability to do what they were doing. I learned that lesson early on when I was in high school and playing basketball. I've shared this so many times, but our coach knew our school, I graduated from L.A. Baptist, which is not, now Heritage. We didn't have good athletes when I was there. We didn't. And that's, if you were there and you thought you were a good athlete, I'm sorry, I just burst your bubble. We didn't. Our basketball team, the center on our basketball team was six feet tall. It's the tallest guy on our team. We were slow. 
We weren't very athletic. We were definitely not going to be more talented than any other team we'd play all season. But our, my coach was smart enough to know what we can do is we can learn how to persevere. So way before season, the season started, way before we ever saw basketball, we were out on the track and we were out on the field. And we were running and running and running. Sprints and distance and all kind of stuff. And the coach knew what he was doing. And when, when I first started into it, I thought, he's crazy. He, doesn't, he just wants to kill us. He just wants to torture us. But he kept reminding us as we were running sprints. And every single time we did that, watching guys lose their breakfast because they were pushed to the limit physically. He said, the reason that we're doing this is when we get into the season, we're going to have teams that are way more talented than us. They're going to be faster, and they're going to be stronger, and they're going to jump higher, but they will not outlast us. They won't. And when we got into the season, I remember getting into the fourth quarter and watching what he talked about actually happen. Watching guys start to fade on the other team. In fact, there were two, two games in particular towards the end of my senior season that were key to us making the playoffs. Both of them went into overtime, and we won both of them. And I watched when we got into overtime, we still had energy, and the other teams just faded. And so we got in tied, and then we would blow out the other team in, the, in the overtime. And it goes, goes back like six months before we ever got there to the season. It was the pain that he pushed us through to teach us this thing called perseverance. That apart from that pain, we would have never learned that. We would have never developed that. And the same thing is true in our journey in following Jesus. Apart from trials and pressure and difficulties, we will never be able to persevere. We won't be able to learn the lesson that God has for us. Second reason why trials. James says this in verse 4. He says, because we can't become mature without them. He says, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If you are convinced that you're mature, yet you haven't experienced pain and pushed through with perseverance, you're deceiving yourself. Because there's something that comes with that trial that you and I cannot manufacture or create apart from its presence in our life. But that means that in order for us to be complete, to not lack, that means we have to be willing to embrace the trials that God is giving us. Now, if you're like me, I, I don't know too many people in this world who enjoy pain. We don't. We don't like, oh, I want to hurt. I want to feel pain. No, we don't. We would rather avoid that. But there's something in us that becomes deficient in our understanding of who God is and how we view maturity in our life if all we do is try to avoid that or refuse to acknowledge the importance of pain, suffering, and trials in our life. I, I had a rude awakening with Dennis Easter sitting in my car probably, I don't know, 15 some, maybe 18 years ago, first getting into ministry. And I was on staff with Dennis and Dennis went away for his 25th wedding anniversary. He and Patsy went off to Hawaii and I was two weeks into full-time ministry and he said, you're preaching, you got the church. I'm like, are you crazy? And so I preached both services that Sunday morning and I felt pretty good, you know, kind of, I was really nervous, but I felt pretty good about it. And then the week after, Dennis comes back, and he had listened to my message, and he goes, hey, let's go grab lunch. He goes, I want to give you some kind of some pointers. I'm like, I'm open for critique. No, I wasn't. I said I was. And I remember after we finished lunch, we were, we're sitting in my car before we went back in the office, and Dennis says to me, he goes, hey, I want to just tell you about your message. He goes, you did a great job. And, just, you know, you start feeling really good about yourself. Like, he goes, man, you handled the text wonderfully. He goes, you did your homework. I felt like you was, he said it was really accurate. You said your, your stories were really great. Um, you know, you're just feeling really good. This is Dennis Easter telling me I'm doing a good job. That's, like, huge, you know. And then he pauses. And he said, but you, you still lacked one thing. I'm like, what did I miss? And he says to me, he said, you lacked pain. And I'm like, 
What do you mean I lacked paint? I mean, I did everything they taught me in Bible college. I mean, I handled the text well. I had good illustrations. All my points started with the same letter. I did everything. And he said, you know, the, the problem that you have is he said, you haven't lived long enough to even know what you're saying. The message I was speaking on that, that morning was out of Philippians on joy through suffering. As a 25-year-old kid who doesn't really know what he's doing. And he said, some of the things that you said were great, but you don't even know what you're saying because you haven't walked through pain in your life. You haven't walked with others through their pain, so you can't fully appreciate what you're saying. So he said, what you say doesn't have a weight to it. I was so mad at him. And then after a couple weeks, I began to realize, now I understand what Dennis was saying. And then a couple months and a couple years, I go back to that conversation so many times. And I did it on Sunday. We went out to lunch with Dennis after the grand opening. And I always go back, and I'm like, Dennis... You were right, doggone it. You were right. And walking through that. But I realized at that time, there was something that I was still lacking because I hadn't walked through life yet. There's something that comes with trials and difficulty and strain that helps us to get to that place where we truly can become mature in what God is doing in our life. So that's the why question. Then there's another question, and it's really something that comes to us that maybe we're not willing to admit. When we go through difficult seasons... We have to find somebody to blame. There has to be a reason. There has to be a cause. There has to be somebody I can point the finger at somehow in the midst of it. And so James addresses that, but he addresses it not up at this level where the kind of the overriding trials are suffering. He addresses it at a lower level, which is really a byproduct of trials, which is this thing called temptation. Verse 13, the, the first kind of category or thought that we have when we go through difficult times and we're feeling like we want to react towards God in a negative way, is that we say in our hearts and our minds, God did this to me. James says this in verse 13, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Remember, James is not referring to trials there. He's referring to temptation within the trial. Because trials are common to all of us, and trials come to everyone. But the question is, how do we respond to the pressure that's applied in our life? That's where the temptation comes in. The temptation comes in because now we have a question. Do I get angry at God and do I react against him and do I blame him for my condition? And then I become bitter towards him and then I justify my sinful behavior. Why? Because God did this to me. And I'm justified in having an attitude or doing whatever I want to do because God wasn't fair with me. That's where the temptation comes. And there's the, that's the, the difficulty for us because you've probably seen it in your own life or you can see it in the lives of people around you. How can one person go through a difficult season in their life and all the way through see God's hand in it and then on the other side praise God for what they walk through and yet someone else go through trials and difficulty and pain and yet want to curse God for what they've walked through? You can see that happen. In our family, a number of years ago, my dad sat us down for about two or three years. He had been going through the potential and possibility of having prostate cancer. And finally, he had gone in for one more test. And then when he called all of our family together and we were sitting down in our living room in Van Nuys and when my dad said, listen, he goes, we've gone through tests and now the doctor's confirmed I have prostate cancer. And when he said that, it was like immediate reaction was, no, not in my family. No, not my dad. That happens to everybody else, but that doesn't happen to me. And then my dad began to explain kind of the process of treatment and what he was going to go through. And, and we 
prayed for him and we prayed for healing and we're praying for a miracle and but God used the means of a medicine to answer to the, to the issue in his body. But I remember watching my dad walk through that season, going through surgery and then going through radiation and then going through the side effects of radiation and all that went with that. And not one time did I ever see him get mad at God. Did I ever see him react against what, what he thought God was doing to him. But I saw this amazing attitude and resolve and peace that he could point that God was at work in his life. I've also witnessed somebody else who we, Kim and I encountered a number of years ago. We were sitting at Lake Tahoe with her family and her cousin sparked a conversation with a guy who was sitting next to us and Jesus got mixed into the conversation and immediately as soon as Jesus came up, this guy reacted. He said, don't tell me about Jesus. Don't tell me about God. He said, I tried that. He said, my parents are going through a divorce and I prayed all the time that they would not go through divorce. And he goes, today my parents are divorced. He goes, there, there, don't tell me there's a God. Because if he was real, he would have caused my parents to love each other and not be divorced today. So he goes through that and he becomes bitter. My dad goes through cancer and yet his heart is turned towards God. That's the level of the temptation that we face when trials come. How are we going to respond? Are we going to get angry at God and say, you did this to me? Or are we going to realize that maybe what we'll talk about in a moment, that the evidence of trials in our life is the evidence that God is at work in us. See, I think that I'm convinced that sometimes we think that God doesn't have our best interests in mind. Which leads to the second thing. Look at verse 14 and 15. The other side of blame is, maybe it's the realization in the process of temptation that you realize, I did this to myself. This temptation is something I gave into. What does James say? But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. It's our response. How do we respond? How do we respond in the midst of a trial? Because that's where the temptation comes. It comes with this place where I have a decision to make according to what's going on around me. And I am convinced that one of the, the reasons we make bad decisions when we give in to temptation that eventually leads to that sin that leads to death is because we don't understand who God is. We don't. We somehow are convinced that God's sole reason for existence is to make our lives miserable. When we go through trials, it's like, really, God, you couldn't pick on anybody else. If you don't think that's true, read Job. That's kind of Job's reflection, really. And yet Job walked through, the, through his experience with, with more than probably anyone will ever go through in this life and came up understanding more about who God is. But I think that we're, we're convinced that, that we think, this is kind of, I think, the way that, that our mentality of God is. If life is good, then God is good. If life is bad, then either God is bad or he does not exist. That's kind of that we go to the extremes, but we don't have a category that maybe in the middle of a trial, which we'll talk more about in a minute, that God actually can be good. See, we, we want everything, we think that everything, God is really at work when we have no problems, when we have no struggles, when we have no trials. In fact, I, I, I think if we did a study or we did a quick poll, other than like John 3.16, I think that one of the most popular verses in all of Scripture is in the Old Testament, it's in the book of Jeremiah, and it's in chapter 29, and it's verse 11. Anybody ever heard that verse before? 
probably most of us could quote that verse as much as we could quote John 3.16. What? For I know the plans I have for you, what declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you hope and a future. Anybody heard that before? We love that verse. You know what we don't like? Is the context it's in. Because when God spoke that, he wasn't speaking it to a bunch of people where life was great. Everything was wonderful. Everything was as it should be. No, he was speaking that to a group of people that, by the way, because of their own sin, his people had lost their land, lost their identity, and lost their place in this world, and they were exiled in Babylon. And Jeremiah comes and God speaks through him and says, by the way, even in the midst of your failure and your difficulty and your trial, I have good plans for you. I have a future for you. If that comes to somebody who's not struggling, it's meaningless. But in the midst of a place where somebody who's lost everything, it means everything. That's the God that we serve. That's the God working in the midst of our trials. Even when we are tempted and when we give in, God is still at work. He's still working out his purpose in us. So, the why, the blame, and then really the third question you're thinking, how in the world do I per- persevere then? Because this sounds impossible. This sounds like we can't, it can't be done. Go back to verse 2, and then we'll look at verse 5 through 11. But verse 2, the first thing that you and I need to understand about what James is saying is, how do I persevere, is that you and I have to change our perspective. Our perspective on trials is faulty. James says something so incredibly either naive on his part or profound that can change our lives. When he says in verse 2, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Are you kidding me? How many, that's like the first thing. Oh, I feel so joyous today because I've just been diagnosed with cancer. Nobody does that. Or I just lost a loved one. Joy is just flowing out of me. Nobody does that. What is James saying? What he's saying is when trials are present in your life, You can be joyful because it is evidence that God is at work. Because with the trial comes the joy of knowing that God loves you enough that he's not going to leave you alone. That he's not going to write you off. That he's not going to be somehow involved with your life, which is our assumption that somehow God's just, he's distant. When when bad stuff happens, God has left the building. He's not part of my life anymore. He's not at work. What James is saying is it's, it's the opposite when trials come, joy comes too. Why? Because God's at work in my life. It's, it's consistent with what we know of even our own physical bodies. Sometimes the only way we know we're alive is if we feel pain. Not that anybody wants pain. Not that anybody gets up in the morning and says, oh, I want to experience all the pain there is in the world. But the evidence of that is the evidence of life. If somebody sustains an injury that paralyzes them, And doctors want to see what kind of feeling they have. If the nerves are still working or if there's been damage in their spinal cord, what do they do? They will run something like a needle up on the bottom of their foot or they'll actually poke them, seeing if there's any response. And if somebody, if you ever sustain an injury like that and they do that kind of test and you feel something, guess what the corresponding emotion is? Joy! I can feel that pain! It means I have feeling. It means I'm alive. The same thing is true when trials come in our life. Now, it's not because, oh, I'm happy about the trial. No, none of us would be. 
but I'm joyous in the fact that because the presence of trial in my life means that God is at work. God hasn't left me. God is present. God is doing something in me because of the presence of this in my life, because pressure is being applied. God loves me enough that he's wanting to perfect me. He's wanting to make me to a place, into a place where I'm not lacking anything in my life. God loves me enough to not leave me alone. I think sometimes that's hard for us to see, but James is saying, listen, if you're going to persevere, you have to change your perspective. It can't be that the presence of trials means the absence of God. It's the opposite. The presence of trials is the verification and evidence evidence of the presence of God in our life. Second thing, we also persevere by verse 5 by learning to ask for wisdom. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. If you've ever experienced trials in your life and difficulties, usually, not always, but a lot of times there's a corresponding effect your prayer life gets a whole lot better. Because when you're not going through anything, sometimes it's like, I don't really need to. I don't even feel the need to. I don't feel this pressure to have to go to God and ask for anything. Why? Because I feel like I'm okay. But when pressures apply, when trials come, then you and I begin to call out to God and ask for wisdom to navigate what I'm going through. And what you and I really normally, what is the prayer? When, 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 when something bad happens, when we go through trials, the prayer usually isn't, God, give me wisdom. It's, God, give me a miracle. That's what we're asking God for. God, make it just all go away. Anybody prayed that prayer before? Yeah, just, just take it away, make it disappear, and then we'll be good, okay? That's all you're supposed to do, God. Just do that for me. But James doesn't say, ask for a miracle. He says, ask for wisdom. Wisdom is different. Wisdom means the trial's not going to disappear. But God's going to give you the ability and the wisdom to navigate how to get through it. The miracle's the easy part. The wisdom's the hard part. And we always will we'll contend for mir- the miraculous. We believe that God works that way. But if God is in the process of perfecting us, then sometimes miracles are not the best route. Because even if you read through in the Gospels, you'll see people who experience miraculous power, and eventually it wasn't enough for them. They were healed, but it didn't necessarily make them follow Jesus. And so that means that it's God's working in us. God's doing something in us. Now, I, I don't claim to have experienced the level of pain and suffering that many people I know have walked through in life. But there's been small things along the way in my experience that you get to those moments and you're like, God, why are you allowing this to happen? Why are you doing this? Because I know your power and I know what you can do and in a moment you can make this all just go away. I've gone through severe allergies in my life in, in three different cycles and seasons of my life. And thank God, by God's grace, I'm not experiencing that now. But it happened when I was in high school. It happened shortly after Kim and I got married and going into ministry. And it happened when we moved to Oregon. And I'm not talking about just like a little runny nose and some itchy eyes. I'm talking full-blown asthma, hay fever, and hives that cover my body from top to bottom. And sometimes it would incapacitate me. And I remember going through that. And so the first time through in high school, you're just like, okay, you go to the doctor. I went through the testing, and I went through the injections, I think I probably set the record for the most pinpricks of any human being alive. I have been poked and prodded and tested so many different times in my life. And each time, you try to manage it and try to figure it out. But the second time round, when I was going through this battle again, I remember I was mature enough, and this sounds bad, mature enough to get angry at God. Like, why did you do this to me? Why did you let this happen? 
And I remember one particular night, I was up, it was about two in the morning, and I was, it was all happening again. I did not want to make another trip to the ER. I didn't want to go through the whole nine yards again. And I remember I was, I, I was, I was getting covered in hives. I couldn't breathe. My nose was clogged. I was miserable. I'm in my living room, and I'm mad at God. And so I'm thinking, I got to get relief somehow. And I knew when I would go and run, I didn't want to go run outside. If I would go and run, even though it would make my allergies worse in some regard, it would actually let me breathe through my nose so I could breathe again. So as I'm praying, I start running in circles in our living room at two in the morning, like praying and like, okay, God, if you're not going to do a miracle, I'm going to at least breathe through my nose. And I was mad. Now, I know that sounds totally ridiculous, but I was angry. Why? Because I know, God, you can take this away. I mean, there's points where I didn't even want to get up out of bed in the morning. Why? Because my face would swell up, and I didn't even want to go in public because I knew, well, what's wrong with you? Let me explain. I'm like, I don't even want to have that dialogue. And you're thinking, oh, how's the story end? God came miraculously at 2 in the morning and lifted my allergies. No, it didn't happen. But God pretty much said, not in verbatim of what he said to Paul when Paul prayed for his thorn in the flesh, but God said, you're going to be okay. I'm going to be with you. You need to walk the course. You need to walk through it. And I walked through it and I got some relief probably about six months later through all the testing and all the medication and I thought it was clear and then we moved to Oregon and it started all over again. But this time I didn't get mad at God because I was reminded in, in my misery as I walked, watched people in our church go through cancer. I watched people go through the effects of diabetes in their body. I watched people go through incredible loss and suffering. And I took a step back and thought, okay, you got hives, dude. That's bad. But it's not as bad as it could be. And it changed my perspective. It changed my understanding. And if, will I get allergies again? I don't know. If I do, I know that God is going to make sure that he can sustain me and he's going to give me the ability to manage my way through it, through his wisdom and through his compassion, through his work in my life. Third thing that will help us to persevere is in verses 6 through 8 where James says, you and I have to check our loyalty. He says, ask for wisdom. But then he goes on and he says in verse 6, but when you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not, not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all that they do. James is taking the gloves off. What is he saying? Now, when James says that you should believe when you ask and that you shouldn't be double-minded, the phrase double-minded has to do with loyalty. It isn't this kind of like almost schizophrenic personality that's one way and the other way. It's this divided loyalty. And when we have divided loyalty, in the end, what we value or who we value the most always wins. But what James is saying is when you ask, you need to have not a double mind, but a single mind focused on God and what he's doing in your life and not some other option or other person that's going to provide for you what only God can provide. Because if you do, you will turn to them and away from God. That's what it means to be double mind. It's a loyalty issue in our life. And some of us, we don't think we have that. Like, oh, I'm all sold out to follow Jesus. I'm all about that. But when pressure's applied, where do we turn? Who do we turn to? What do we turn to? Because that exposes that loyalty. What are we truly loyal to? It was probably about six weeks ago. 
God like kind of revealed something I had no idea was going on in my life. I was out exercising one morning, and I have a tendency, I like to listen to music or to podcasts, and I'm listening to Tim Keller, who's a pastor in New York City, very articulate, really smart, a whole lot smarter than I am, and he was talking about idols in our lives, and he, he said, you know, most people think, they say, you know, I don't have any idols, you know, especially people who are following Jesus, I don't have idols in my life, and then he just started to describe what idols look like, and pretty much he put it in a nutshell, he goes, this is what an idol is, he said, he said, whatever if that, whatever thing or person in your life, if they were removed from your life, causes you to question your will to live, that's an idol. If that thing or that person wasn't a part of your life, you would begin to consider, can I even move forward? And I thought, oh, wow, that's, that's a different way of looking at idol. And then he starts to go deeper. And Tim Keller starts to talk about his relationship with his wife. And he said, I, I was surprised a number of years ago when I had not even, un, un, unintentionally, I had turned my wife into an idol. I'm like, how do you turn your wife into an idol? He said, began to explain, he said, I began to use her as the means to look at my life. In other words, I asked her after every time I preached what she thought of my message. And if she thought it was good, life was good. If she thought it was bad, life was horrible. And so he said, I would constantly go to her. I, I would love to spend time with her. And so I would always want to be with her. And so it was kind of like I was so like focused on her that I began to realize if she were to die, my loyalty is to her more than it is to God. And then he said this. He said, you know you have an idol. He said, and this is what it was a revelation for him. He said, if my wife were to die and I'm standing over her casket looking at her, I realized that what my loyalty was to was to her has just died. And if her loyal, my loyalty to her was greater than my loyalty to God, then my salvation just died with her too. Because everything came from her and not him. And I'm out there, I'm running, and I almost stopped in, in my tracks like, I've done that to Kim. I've done that to her. I've kind of put that pressure on her instead of turning to Jesus. And remember, I got back home and I said, you got to listen to this. And so she listened to it and she looked at me. She goes, I did that too. Now, that's not to mean that you can't love your wife or your husband. And it may be something else in your life. But you realize if that thing is removed, you begin to lose the will to live, that thing is an idol. Because the beauty is that Jesus died and rose from the dead so he's alive so he never will die so all the our source never will go away but that means for you and i what james is saying when you ask for god's wisdom in your life you have to have loyalty to him otherwise if his advice is not what you want guess what you'll do you'll go to the other loyalty you'll default to something else and you won't listen to him unless what he's saying james is pretty much saying don't ask god for wisdom unless you're going to follow through on it don't Don't ask him to speak into your life unless you're going to say, you know what, regardless of what he says, I will do this. He says, don't even bother asking because you're not ready to do what he's going to call you to do or ask you to do. Fourth thing, before we'll conclude with some understandings of how we can build trust in God, we persevere by the fourth thing, by considering our position. This is, again, James gets harder. Verses 9 through 11. He says, believers in humble circumstances, or another translation really is those in poverty, those poor, 
ought to take pride in their high position, but rich, the rich, should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, blossoms fall, and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. What in the world is James talking about? He's saying something that is the exact opposite of what most of us believe. So, the first part, James says, those who are poor should take pride in their high position. What is he saying? If you were here a few weeks ago, we talked about this. I've mentioned this before. By virtue of you living in this country, you are rich. Rest of the world, most of the rest of the world, looks at the United States, and even the poorest in our country would be considered either middle class or wealthy to the rest of the world's standards, especially outside of Europe. So that means that when the Bible uses the term rich, guess who it's referring to? Not the person that has more money than you. The Bible's referring to us, all of us. So what's happening here is James is saying the person who is poor should take pride in their high position. Why? Because, we talked about this a few weeks ago, what does money afford us? Comfort, convenience, and control, or at least perceived control. So when I have money, guess what, guess what happens to me? When I go through trials, when I go through difficulties, I find a way to alleviate my pain and my suffering and my trial by what my money can buy me. The comfort that it will bring to me. So if I'm wealthy, I don't get to experience the full impact of what God's trying to teach me. But if I'm not wealthy... I'm much closer to becoming the mature person God wants me to be. Why? Because I have nothing to absorb the trial I'm walking through. Therefore, God's work can go deep in me because I don't have anything to inoculate me from the trial. If you don't believe that's true, you haven't traveled outside our country. Go to Haiti. Go to Africa. Go to places where there is abject poverty. And you you, you will find, especially in the church, you will find people who have nothing, yet they have more joy than we will ever be able to experience. They are so grateful for everything that they are grateful to even wake up in the morning. And that's what's so amazing if you've traveled. I've, I've experienced this so many times. And especially when you come back from Haiti, you get off the plane at LAX and you drive out of the terminal and you get on Sepulveda or Century Boulevard and you look at what we have. I'm driving by like 15 restaurants and 10 hotels and three BMWs just sped by me and two limos over here. And what do we do? We complain about it all. And yet you go to a country where they have anything and you don't hear people complain very much because they're grateful. Why? Because in their low, their low economic level, they're actually in a higher position than we are. That's why a couple of weeks ago we talked about, Jesus talked about the rich young man. And what did Jesus say to him? He said something really important. Remember, this guy had wealth, he had power, and he was moral. All the things we think, yeah, if I could have that. But Jesus said, after he listed all that, he, Jesus says to him, you still lack one thing. And what was Jesus' antidote to his lack? Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Then come, follow me. You'll have treasure in heaven. Now, you think, oh, Pastor John's saying I have to go sell all my possessions. If that's what God tells you to do, then do it. 
But you and I need to take a step back and consider our wealth and how we use the resources we have for our own personal comfort to somehow make us insulated to the very trials God wants to use in our life to teach us to how to become mature and persevere. That doesn't mean that rich people don't suffer. But it means, what, hear what James is saying? He actually uses a really strong term. He says, you should take pride in your what? Position of humiliation. Which means, because you're wealthy, you can never learn the, the, the maturity or the level of maturity that you need to learn. Therefore, there's a level of humiliation because you don't know what you don't know. That means that we have to take a step back and say, okay, how much of my wealth do I spend on my own personal comfort? How much of my wealth do I use for my own convenience? How much do I spend on myself to make sure that I don't feel pain and be uncomfortable? How much of that? It's very funny. It was interesting for a service when I was talking about this. The middle air conditioner kicked on. And the guy told me afterwards, he goes, yeah, I'm thankful for air conditioning. Maybe next week we'll shut all the air off and see how many people show up to church, right? But just thinking about that, not just saying, okay, I have to go take a, a vow of poverty and I can't sleep under a roof. I have to sleep in my bed. No, that's ridiculous. But you and I need to think through, what am I not experiencing of what God wants to work in my life because I'm too concerned of how I can avoid pain instead of allowing God to use it in my life. That's why James addressed this. He said, listen, your position has to change. It has to change. Then I'm going to conclude with these three things. So underneath this, the foundation is really what we're talking about is trusting God. How do I trust God in the middle of pain and suffering? So the first thing that James says, verse 16 and 17, is that you and I have to be reminded that God is good. Verse 16, James says, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights. Every good and perfect gift. Now, here's the real important thing. You and I don't get to determine what's good. See, here's how it works. We think that God is good because we've defined what good is, and when God does that, then he's good. No. God is the definition of what goodness looks like. Therefore, anything he does is good. That's why, for example, go through 1 John. The Bible specifically says God is love. Is God loving? Yes, but that falls short. So many people say, oh, God is so loving and compassionate. And that's why a lot of them in our culture are like, God would never do something like that because he's loving. No, God is not loving. God is love. He's the definition of love. That means everything that he does is loving. That's the definition. That means if God is good because he's the definition of goodness, then even when trials come, he's still good. That's an extension of his goodness in our life. Because he's, he's God, he gets to find what goodness and what love looks like. And then we look at him and say, that's what it looks like. That's the definition of it. And the same thing is true for this. And that's why there's this reminder that when we're in the midst of trials, there's something good that God is developing in us. But apart from that, you and I will not experience that good thing. In fact, we may not see that good thing until the trial is over and we can look back and go, oh yeah, that was good. But what we want to do is we want to what? We want to eject right out of the middle of the trial and say, you know what? I don't, I don't need that. But if we stick through, we'll actually learn what God wants us to learn. When we were in Oregon, when you would go outside in the wintertime because you had to, because you had to address things in your yard, it was a whole other category of what you'd say is yard work. 
Because in the middle of the winter in Oregon, the grass stops growing, it stays green, but the rain never stops falling, and things happen. Because in Oregon, they get rain, and you get wind, and when that happens, bad things happen. So one time, we had like a whole week long of like torrential rains, followed by a strong windstorm, and so a tree went down in our backyard. Now, there are some people in Oregon that they, this is what they, seriously, for about eight months, they said, I'm not going to touch my yard, and you can tell. It's a mess. And then when the sun finally comes out, somewhere around like May or June, they're like, okay, I'll address it. But not for us. We had a tree go down in our backyard, and that tree was all over the backyard. And because of that, it was by a fence, and there was issues, so we had to take care of it. So you wait till the next available moment, which was the next Saturday. So Saturday morning, I get up, and I'm not joking, it's 38 degrees and raining. This is the only window of time that I have to address the backyard. So I get Jordan up. I think Jordan was like 10 years old. And I said, guess what we're doing today? We're going to go take care of the tree that fell down in our backyard. He wasn't too excited about that at first. So we got out there, and, and within the first 15 minutes, you lose finger, you lose uh, feeling in your fingers and your feet because it's cold. And the rain keeps coming. And our backyard was like a swamp, so you're slipping and you're falling. And within an hour, we're both covered in mud. Jordan's covered in mud. And I'm trying to use a chainsaw in the middle of all this and cutting up everything and trying to get it in smaller pieces so we can haul it off to the mill and get rid of it. And we're going, and, and it took forever. And I kept watching Jordan to kind of see where he's at. And I was shocked because as we're going through this, I'm like, he's going to start complaining. He's going to go, Dad, I'm done. Dad, this is your job. Dad, I have something else to do. Dad, I'm cold. And I, I think maybe once in like five hours, Jordan started complaining. And then he snapped out of it. And he went right back to work. And so we were going through this, and I was thinking in my mind, as I'm freezing, and I'm saying, God, why did you call us to Oregon? All those kinds of things. In my mind, I'm thinking, this is really good for my son. I'm watching something develop in him. That he's having to do something that's painful and hard work, and he's learning this thing called perseverance. I remember we finished the day. It was like five hours later. We had borrowed Kim's dad's truck and took like three or four loads to the mill to get rid of it. There was a mill in town that would take wood. And I remember we got back home. We were just like a mess. And I looked at Jordan, and I'm like, this was good. This was good. That he learned something today that apart from 38 degrees and raining and a tree back down in our backyard, he would have never have learned. The same thing is true in our lives that there's something of the goodness of God that comes to bear in the middle of a trial and then at the end that we realize God was good in the middle of that. He was making me learn something that I didn't maybe even want to embrace. I was learning perseverance because of that. Now I will get to that place in my life where God will look at me and he'll say, you no longer lack. You've become mature. So God is good. Second thing that you and I have to be reminded of to trust God is God is unchanging. James says, who does not change like shifting shadows? Everything around us changes. All of, all of our life changes. Constant change. Trials are constantly changing around us and causing difficulty. We would love for things to stay the same. We talked about that. One of the things that wealth buys us is the attempt to be consistent, to not have things change all the time. But trials come along and they mess up everything. Every, everything changes. And because of that, what happens is I think in the midst of our trials we begin to focus on the trial and no longer focus on God. And then we begin, we're upside down. I had a conversation with a young lady this morning that about a month ago lost her mom suddenly. 
I mean, one of the, the hardest, most horrific points of shock that any person can go through in, in their life. And as we were talking about this, she said something that was so profound. She said, I'm so glad that I know Jesus. She said, because through this, I've drawn closer to him. This is like a 21-year-old lost her mom. And she's saying stuff to me that sometimes when we're in our 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, we still haven't learned. And you can tell she's, she had latched on to Jesus in, the, in the, probably the deepest moment of pain in her life. And she was growing in deep, deeper in love with him. And the reason that she was able to do that is because she, kept her, she has kept her eyes on Jesus in the midst of all of what's going on and the waves of grief that she continues to experience. She's watching her family members that don't know Jesus and they're a mess. And she goes, I become the one that can comfort people in the family because really she's the only one that's anchored in Jesus. Anybody ever been on Space Mountain at Disneyland? One of my, one of my favorite rides. When you first get on the ride, you leave the station, you turn to the right, and then you make it another slight right, and then you start going up. And as you're going up, these lights turn on and start rotating around you. Anybody remember that? And if you're, if you're riding there and you start to look at the lights, what happens is it starts playing with your mind, and you actually start feeling like you're turning upside down. It's the weirdest thing. And I know when I've gone, I've gone on that ride probably hundreds of times. And there's sometimes we'll turn that corner, and I just want to trip my brain out, so I'll watch the lights. It's just kind of weird, you know, and you're like, whoa, you know. And then there's other times like, I don't want to do that. I just want to enjoy the ride. So as soon as we turn that corner, I know I am not looking at the lights. I'm looking at the track because the track's not moving. Although the lights are rotating around me, the track is constant. It's not moving. And when I look at that, I can pretty much, I can fade out the peripheral of my vision so I don't see those lights anymore so that my mind just start, doesn't start going upside down. I think that's the same thing with our trials. It's easy to get distracted by the trials around us and lose focus to the fact that God is the anchor in the midst of that. If we keep our eyes focused on him, we realize, like James says, there are shifting shadows all over the place, but God is unchanging. He doesn't change in the midst of our trials. He is consistent. And then, final thing before we conclude. One of the things you and I, even though we don't feel it, we have to know it, and that is God is actually in control. Verse 18, James says, He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all He created. First two words are really important. He chose. God chose the life that He wants you to have. God chose for you to be in existence. God chose for you to walk through trials, to be perfected, to become mature. God chose all of this, which means if God chose it, guess who's in control of it? He is. So when bad things come into our lives, it doesn't mean that God is not in control anymore. Why? Because it was his choice. It's his choice to allow our lives to unfold the way that they unfold. And that means we have to be willing to embrace that, that he is in control of our lives. There's so much. I, I did a memorial yesterday, and I talked about this, that if you look through the scriptures, you will find at every point of our life, God is present. There's not one moment where he's absent. He's present at our birth. He's present in our circumstances. He is present where we live and the times that we live. He's present throughout. 
because he is orchestrating things for all humanity, that his desire is to be with us, and therefore every single moment of every single day, God is orchestrating our lives to turn our attention towards him. Why? Because he wants to reconcile all things back to him through Jesus. That's his agenda. And that's, he's in control of all of this. And if you and I will understand that, we'll understand the next part of the verse, which I didn't get until about three weeks ago. I've read this book so many times, and I've studied James before, but this didn't really make sense to me until three weeks ago. We were with some friends, it might even not even be three weeks ago, maybe two weeks ago. It was Labor Day, so we were with some friends, we went over to their house, and uh, they have a, a little bit of space, a little bit of land, and on their land they have trees. They have fruit trees and all kinds of different things that are growing. And so uh, getting to know them a little bit, when, when uh, the, the owner of the house, he, he said, hey, he goes, I, I'd like to take you on a little tour of my land. I'm like, this will be great. And it was cool because I was getting to know him a little bit, but he was like a kid in a candy store. He's like, you got to come see. He goes, all the trees that I have and all the fruit that's growing and all this different stuff. And so we get out there and so we're walking around and he's saying, this is this kind of tree. He's like got lemon trees and orange trees and lime trees and avocado trees. And then he's got trees that he doesn't know what they are, but they're producing really cool fruit. He's got all kind of stuff. And so we're walking through and he's kind of explaining stuff to us. And then we get to kind of this area where it's mostly citrus trees. And he says, he goes, look, he goes, look really closely at the tree. He goes, I want to show you something. It's really cool. He said, he goes, because he goes, now that I have land and I have trees and I have agriculture, he goes, I'm starting to kind of figure out a lot of the stuff that Jesus was talking about. See, because we don't live in an agricultural society primarily. Because of that, we don't understand a lot of what Jesus is saying. And so he says, he goes, all right, I want you to look at this tree. He goes, just stare at it for a moment. He goes, do you see the fruit? And I'm looking at it. And it, it was, it was, I think it was an orange tree. I'm not sure what, if it was, because he had so many different variations. But you could see all these green oranges hanging on the tree. I mean, and the longer you look, you're like, wow, they're everywhere. And he goes, keep looking, keep looking. He goes, now I want you to look a little deeper. And he goes, I want you now to look for the ripe fruit on this tree where all these things were green. And I started looking, and throughout that tree were all these oranges next to green oranges that were fully ripened. He goes, do you see them? I'm like, yeah, I see them. So he goes and he picks one off the tree. He goes, you know what this is? I'm like, no, what is it? What is it? He goes, this is first fruits. I said, what do you mean? He goes, yeah, you know that stuff Jesus talked about? And throughout the Old Testament, the first fruits? He goes, this is it. He said, in this tree is the ability to produce first fruits. Before all the other fruit is matured and has come to be ripened, there are, there are oranges that ripen first. And he said, they're the sweetest. Now, I'm not a big fruit guy. But he's like, you got to taste this. So he starts peeling it, and he hands me a piece of the orange, and I start eating it. It was the sweetest orange I had ever tasted in my life. He said, that's the first fruits. So when James says that he might be, or we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created, what James is saying is, through the process of trials, because God chose that for your life, he is making and producing the best possible fruit in you as a first fruits, as a demonstration of what God's work looks like in humanity. That, to me, when I was like, okay, now I get it. If I don't embrace the trials and the difficulties of my life, and I find a way to either inoculate myself to them or run from them or get mad at God in them, I will never be the first fruit offering that God wants my life to be. I will never be fully what God has designed me to be. I will never, as we've talked about this series, experience the faith that God intended me to live apart from the trials and the difficulty 
and the suffering in our life. Now I'm going to pray in a moment. We'll, cl- we'll close. But I, as I process through this message, as we're walking through this, this, this series is important. Obviously it's important when we open God's word and we listen to what he's saying. But it's important for our church because I'm convinced that this is not only applicable for us as individuals, this is applicable for our church family. All that we've walked through as a church, going through our grand opening last week, hearing the word that God is giving us, what Dennis spoke last week, God is wanting to produce first fruits in our life. For those of you who've been a part of this church for the last 20 some years, have you gone through a few trials as a church family? Just a few. It's evidence that God has been present through the last 20 to 25 years of this church's history. Why? Because he's producing something in us. It's not evidence that God was absent. It's evidence that God was present. And I don't want to pull out of whatever. Now, by the way, this is not all setting up because I have any announcement to make about anything wrong in our church, okay? All right, you can now exhale for some of you who've been for a while. Here it comes. No, it's not coming. But what I'm saying is, let's follow Jesus into the new thing that he's doing. Because he's producing the fruit in our life that apart from what we've walked through individually and what we've walked through as a church, we could never arrive at on our own. And let's see what that looks like in our lives. Let's see what that looks like for a church. And let's see what that looks like in our city. Because what God can produce is so much better than what we can try to manipulate or manufacture in our own lives. Is that true? Amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the words that James recorded for us to hear. Lord, and I know even as today as we walk through this, I I don't want to ever minimize or downplay the pain and the difficulty and the suffering that people will walk through, that any of us will go through. But Lord, I I know, and sometimes it can almost feel like cliche that, oh, when you go through trials, you should have joy. But Lord, I know that it's beyond the cliche that you're trying to communicate to us to help us to see things that maybe we haven't seen before about how you work in our lives and what you're up to and what your ultimate goal is. And I pray, Lord, that by your spirit today that we would allow to settle in in our hearts and our minds what you are saying to us about our life so that when we go from this place, when we move into the next moment of our life, we will see you differently, we will see our lives differently, and we will see the struggle and the pain and the trials we go through differently because we know you love us, and because of that, you are teaching us perseverance that will lead to maturity so that we don't lack anything before you, but become fully the people that you've called us to be. We thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen.